0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Burrow's furniture is built for the way you live, from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating. They always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. An experiment. Yeah, We don't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it
2: sounds
3: so
4: simple. They had no idea. But now the data's... Pe- I find this... Not only
5: refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to The Nature Podcast. This week, establishing climate change's role in the ongoing Australian bushfires and Isaac Asimov's impact on robot ethics. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Large parts of Australia have been ravaged by bushfires that have been raging across the country for months. These fires have been, for the one of a better word, devastating, and researchers are trying to work out what contribution climate change has played in them. One of these researchers is Sophie Lewis from the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Sophie lives in Canberra, Australia's capital city, located in the southeast of the country. For weeks at the back end of last year, the city was being choked by smoke from nearby fires. But over the holiday period, things escalated.
6: So on New Year's Eve, really, really thick smoke started pouring into Canberra and settling over the city. So on New Year's Day, it felt apocalyptic. There was a really thick orange haze. Visibility was terrible. Um, There was very little going on in terms of people movements or animals. Usually in my suburb we have kangaroos hopping around happily, we have bird life, and it was desolate. There was nothing here.
5: For many people in Australia, this has been a troubling time.
6: It was scary. I was really scared, and so was my partner. And we made a pretty rapid decision that um, one of us, at least, was going to get our young daughter out of the situation. So I flew out to Hobart to spend some time with family there, and my partner stayed in Canberra to ready our house for the catastrophic fire weather that was being forecast for the days after New Year's.
5: Thankfully, Sophie's home was safe.
6: To date, we haven't lost any houses in Canberra. Um, We have some really fantastic work going on here by our emergency service agencies, and they're doing a great job of getting people to get their bushfire plans ready, providing information about where is safe to be. I mean, we're very, very lucky that we haven't been impacted by those fires. We know lots of people on the uh, south coast of New South Wales around that time, and they spent time in evacuation or relief centres. They faced really scary situations. So we're lucky in that respect, but it's just been exhausting. Yesterday, I spent the afternoon trying to work while listening to emergency service announcements uh, and looking at what was going on with the wind and the smoke to see if we needed to start preparing to leave our home.
5: Australia experiences seasonal fires every summer and there have been huge ones in the past but Sophie describes this season's fires as unprecedented.
6: We have had big bushfires before in the past but none that have really occurred on the scale we're talking about. We're talking about fires over huge areas and for many months. They haven't gone out yet. There has been quite favourable weather in the last week or two and our fire services have done a great job of using that period to try and contain some of these fires. But what we've experienced has never occurred before in what's been observed for Australia.
5: The current and ongoing fire season began in September 2019 and has seen more than 10 million hectares of land burnt across the country. To try and put that into context, it's an area over twice the size of Switzerland. So far, over 30 people are known to have lost their lives, thousands of homes have been lost, and some estimates suggest that a billion animals have been killed. At a global level, there are a number of processes which have combined to contribute to the severity of this year's fire season. Here's Nikki Phillips, Nature's Asia-Pacific Bureau Chief.
4: There are very natural processes that drive Australia's bushfire risk. We're in the middle of a drought, and drought is usually a factor in how severe our bushfire seasons are. Another natural factor that we had against us this year was this thing called the Indian Ocean Dipole, and that's it's kind of basically a difference in sea surface temperatures in the ocean and when it's in its positive phase it reduces the amount of rainfall over southern and northern Australia and then as if we we didn't need it this year also there's a phenomenon above Antarctica where these polar winds were kind of affected and changed directions which in the end resulted in more kind of hot dry weather over Australia So we had all these natural processes going on. But on top of all that, we've also got climate change.
5: Last year was Australia's driest and hottest on record. And understandably, people want to know what role climate change is playing in the fires. Linking extreme events to climate change is known as attribution science, something we've covered on the pod before. By modelling multiple factors, researchers are able to offer an idea of whether an event was made more likely or more serious by climate change. Take the extreme heat wave in Western Europe last year. Researchers suggested that this spell was made at least 10 times more likely by human-induced climate change. Sophie, who you heard from earlier, works on attribution science. Last year, she published a paper linking 2018 fires in northeastern Australia to climate change. Unlike heat waves, fires are difficult to perform attribution studies on partly due to their complexity. Here's
1: Sophie again.
6: We can have a really hot day in Australia, a scorcher, and we don't have a bushfire because there's so much more that goes into it. We need an ignition, so that could be anything from a power line failure, it could be a lightning strike, but we also need conditions to be primed in the environment for that fire. So we need dry conditions in terms of the fuel load and the fuel moisture content. Uh, we need winds to sustain the fire. We need usually low humidity. So there's lots of different factors that go into that event. So it's not as straightforward as looking at a heat wave, even though there's also complexity in the weather that we experience with our heat waves.
5: Sophie is now part of a group led by researchers in Europe who have turned their attention to the current bushfire season. To examine the role of climate change on the bushfires. The team first needs to define the time frame and location they're going to focus on, which is tricky given the scale of the fires. Then they'll run a huge number of simulations to determine the influence of climate change on individual factors like temperature or humidity, and its effect on all of these factors combined. Nikki's been looking into this group's work for a feature in this week's Nature, and she explained their approach.
4: The reason they're doing it that way is because the researchers that I've been talking to are fairly confident that they'll be able to see that climate change influence the extreme temperatures because we know the globe is warming. But we don't know whether climate change is influencing the other factors that go into extreme fire danger like the wind and the humidity and that sort of thing. And so they've got to look at them separately and together to see whether they can get a picture of the contribution of climate change to an event like we've seen this year.
5: The team are hoping to publish their results soon, and Sophie hopes that attribution studies like this will help people plan for future events.
6: If a study finds that climate change made a bushfire in northern Australia and Queensland more likely, that's really important information for people who are making planning decisions about our future because places like that aren't necessarily well set up for these fires. In Southern Australia, we have very sophisticated responses in terms of emergency services and management. We have teams of volunteers who are trained and ready to go, but that's not necessarily the case in places where fires are occurring where they didn't before. So the hope is that that information will then be used and available to anyone who's at the front line of those events.
5: Climate change discussions in Australia are fiercely politicised, and there's a recent editorial in Nature calling for the country's leaders to act in the face of overwhelming evidence and public opinion. I asked Nikki about the mood among the climate scientists she spoke to.
4: At least the ones in Australia feel that our government isn't doing enough to address the factors that are contributing to climate change. They did warn us. Some of the first studies saying that climate change would make fire seasons worse in Australia, came out in 1981. In 2008, a a government report said that the fire seasons would start earlier, end later, and be more severe. So I think there is an element of you've been warned.
5: That was Nikki Phillips. You also heard from Sophie Lewis. You can read Nikki's feature, which talks more about fire attribution studies and the situation in Australia, over at nature.com slash news.
3: Later in the show, we'll have an update on the Wuhan coronavirus story and hear how social scientists are struggling to cope with social media bots. Both of those stories are in the news chat. Now, though, it's time for the research highlights, read by Anna Nagel.
7: If you've heard of Pompeii, it's likely because of the violent eruption of Mount Vesuvius in AD 79 that destroyed the town. Today, tourists visit the site to see casts of the volcano's victims, frozen forever at the moment they were engulfed in volcanic debris. But you may not know that nearby Herculaneum was also hit by Vesuvius. Now remains from this site have thrown some confusion into theories of how people perished. It's long been thought that Vesuvius's victims died instantly, their soft tissue vaporised by the heat. But a new analysis of bones in Herculaneum suggests that those who died suffocated and baked rather than vaporised. That may not be the end of the story, though. Separately, brain tissue in the remains of a skull from Herculaneum had turned to glass ...suggesting the victim had been subjected to extreme temperatures that would have vaporised human tissue. Vaporised or baked? Precisely how Vesuvius takes its victims is clearly still a matter of debate. Find those papers in the New England Journal of Medicine and Antiquity. We're about to travel back in time to ancient Egypt... Behold, the voice of Nesiamun, scribe and priest at the Temple of Karnak. Uh. Well, what were you expecting from a 3,000-year-old mummy? The sound you just heard was produced from a 3D-printed vocal tract and electronic larynx. Using CT scans, researchers were able to take precise measurements of the mummified priest's vocal tract, which was particularly well-preserved. The researchers say their work could have applications for how history is presented to the public, allowing us to hear the voices of those long dead. For Nessie Amoun, his desire was to have his voice heard in the afterlife in order to live forever. Perhaps science has helped him achieve that. Uncover that research in Scientific Reports. Living in
3: the year 2020 is great. Every morning, my robot butler brings me my replicated coffee, and at work, my friendly Android colleague and I make the weekly podcast. Well, okay, the year 2020 isn't exactly how science fiction writers of the past may have imagined. Artificial intelligence is everywhere, but it's more likely to be found in an algorithm sending me targeted advertising than in a helpful robot. But one thing that's still important is the question of how machines make decisions. In particular, ethical decisions. One science fiction writer who's had a big impact on these kinds of ideas is Isaac Asimov. Now, Asimov's personal ethics were dubious. He was well known during his lifetime for his unapologetic harassment of women. Despite this, his writing, in particular stories imagining how robots might be designed to follow simple ethical rules, continues to inspire debate. This month marks 100 years since Asimov was born, and Nature has published an essay on Asimov's work by David Leslie, ethics fellow at the Alan Turing Institute. Reporter Sharmini Bundel set out to talk to David about whether Asimov's ideas about robotic ethics still apply, as artificial intelligence becomes more prevalent. She found him at the Institute, which is based in London, nestled in the centre of the British Library.
8: Here we are in in the British Library... I can see just huge stacks of antique books here already. And how many Asimov books do you reckon they've got in the library here?
0: Hundreds. I hope that it would be the nearly you know, 500 that exist, or, or around 500.
8: As well as being an Asimov fan, David has a particular interest in Asimov's vision of a future where humans live and work alongside robots.
0: What Asimov did was he took a world in which robots were portrayed as kind of, you know, alien, like alien monsters, right? And he tried to make the the stories more realistic where they're exploring the possibilities that are opened up by, by robotics and what we would call now artificial intelligence.
8: And you've got some um, books on the table here, including iRobot, which is a number of short stories. Could you give us some idea about the kind of things that came up in these stories that he, he discusses in these books that, that were quite new at the time and have had quite a lot of influence since then?
0: Well, I mean, I think we would have to to first talk about the famous three laws of robotics, which actually uh, arise in in the iRobot series. And uh, the three laws are basically a robot may not injure a human being or allow through an action a human being to come to harm. Uh, That's the first law. Second law is a robot must obey orders given by a human being unless that contradicts with the first law. And the third law is a robot must protect their existence unless that protection would come into conflict with the first two laws. And so the stories that he wrote in iRobot and, and the other uh, robot stories uh, beyond that had to do with the ways in which these three laws play out in real-world circumstances. And For instance, I'm thinking of one in particular where he, he has a, a robot, I think it was Herbie, who is able to read minds and Herbie started to lie. So here it is. A very interesting passage. So she, meaning Calvin, she faced them and spoke sarcastically. Surely you know the fundamental first law of robotics. The other two nodded together. Certainly, said Bogart, irritably. A robot may not injure a human being or through inaction allow him to come to harm. Nicely put, sneered Calvin. But what kind of harm? Why, any kind. Exactly any kind. What about hurt feelings? What about deflation of one's ego? What about the blasting of one's hope? Is that injury? Lanning frowned. What would a robot know about that? And then he caught himself with a gasp. You've caught on, have you? This robot reads minds. Do you suppose it doesn't know everything about mental injury? Do you suppose that if asked a question, it wouldn't give exactly that answer that one wants to hear? So anyway, that's one of these great passages where the scientists are realizing that one can't program a notion of injury or harm simply formally into a computer because it, it requires interpretation.
8: The three laws seem to be a way of trying to program in ethics. Let's solve all sort of moral conundrums about people tied to tram tracks with, with some simple rules. How useful are uh, are those rules in your discussions of, of AI ethics.
0: We have to remember, the three laws of robotics were a literary device for him. So I think that a lot of times in, in our kind of contemporary world, we're seeking out you know, a moral panacea for the problems that are raised by artificial intelligence. But for Asimov, he really intended the, the laws to be uh, an occasion for reflection on the human impacts of technology. For me, it sort of casts a floodlight on the need to actually think about automated systems as automated, as following prescribed rules and the limitations of that. In other words, the, the system might have prescribed rules, but the system won't be moral in the same way that humans are moral, because humans have to interpret what things like harm or human or humanity means.
8: And specifically, if you're trying to program a machine to make a decision, which may include sort of ethical components, what are the kind of challenges that people are facing?
0: Well, I think first off, there's the challenge of thinking about where the values are going to come from that are going to inform the programming or the the behavior of the instrument. Uh, the way that a an automated system is designed derives from all of the values, all of the choices, the human choices of those who are involved in its design, production, implementation, and so we have a big set of dilemmas here about. Who's making the technology? Are the makers of the technology representative of the world that the technology will impact?
8: And the kind of machines and robots that we have today, we don't have sort of humanoid robots wandering around helping us with everyday tasks, but we do have things that we're trying to think about like self-driving cars is is the one that always comes up. Um, What kind of ethical problems are we faced right
0: now? I think we live in a world where we are increasingly subjected to the decisions of automated systems we we live in an increasingly prediction oriented society where you've got a lot of large scale algorithms that are anticipating or preempting bits of our behavior just think about the various social media outlets that that use kind of curatorial algorithms and that world is not necessarily a world where the automated systems are our companions and i think that would have horrified asimov i think that that For him, when we live in a world that is algorithmically steered, we've lost that component of human agency and human freedom that he saw at the very core of what it is to be human and and, and what it is to, to actually have and use technology.
8: And what kind of a future do you see? Where do you see this going in terms of robots being tools or being used to predict and control and influence
0: so one of the interesting problems that that comes up across the stories is this notion of of a Frankenstein complex, a kind of irrational fear, a gut feel, that in a sense these are just kind of monsters that are going to supplant humans and come to rule the world. The, cr- the creatures come to take over the creators, and for Asimov, one of his bigger picture thoughts was that we needed to, to overcome this kind of fantasy for him robots and robotics was just automation. They were tools. And I think what that means is we need to pay attention to what Asimov says, and, and we need to, to think of the ways in which machines aren't necessarily going to be monstrous agents of the future, but rather think of them as allies, uh, automated allies that, that can help us as tools to build a better world together.
5: That was David Leslie talking to Sharmini Bundel at the Alan Turing Institute. You can find his essay on Asimov in Nature's Books and Culture section at nature.com slash books dash culture.
3: Last up on the show, it's time for the news chat. This week, I have the pleasure of being joined by two guests. I've got Heidi Ledford and Ewan Calloway, both senior reporters here at Nature. Hi, guys. Hello. Hi there. Thanks for joining me. So, you were actually with us last week telling us all about what's come to be known as the Wuhan coronavirus. And this is a fast changing story. And when we talked about this last week, a lot of what we said was already out of date. So, with that in mind, what more do we know about this virus?
9: Yeah, and probably what I'm saying now is going to be out of date. I think last week there was still some question over whether cases were being driven by spread between animals and humans. And it's become utterly clear that humans are spreading this virus between themselves. There are upwards of four thousand cases that have been confirmed. There are probably thousands more in in China alone. Uh, we've got cases in other Asian countries, cases in the U.S., in Germany, and, and elsewhere. So things are things are changing really rapidly to, to say the least, and this virus has legs. Do we have any idea how quickly the
3: virus is spreading
9: between people? It, that I mean that's something that epidemiologists are trying to get a hand on. There's this kind of figure that that they talk about called R not, which is kind of a, an approximate measure of how many people an infected person tends to infect, and if it's greater than one, you need to do something to control the outbreak. less than one. And infections should eventually fizzle out because uh, you get fewer and fewer people passing it on in each successive generation. And so people are trying to come up with rough estimates of this value. It's, you know, two, three, four, something like that. These are very, very rough estimates because the epidemiology is uncertain. But, you know, what's clear is this virus is spreading between people. And I guess one of the big unanswered questions is – when does the virus spread between people? Like, There's this period of incubation time that the virus has before it causes symptoms. And, you know, there's an open question, can you spread the virus during this incubation period? If you can, it's quite worrying because you have people without symptoms spreading the virus. So it's hard to identify and isolate them. So (laughs) there's, you know, a a really lot of pressing questions uh, about this and very little answers, or at least very little public answers right now, I'm afraid.
3: Is there anything more that can be done to try and control this
9: or help this issue? I don't know. I mean I think you know that that's the question that epidemiologists around the world are asking is is you know what can be done to control this if if you have a situation where people without symptoms are spreading the virus for a long period of time it's going to be tricky to control you know with with SARS one of the reasons that people were able to control SARS when, when they did was because there were a few cases in which people didn't have symptoms. So it was, it was possible to isolate most people before they became transmissible. If, if you can't do that here, then, you know, it, it's unclear what's going to work. I'm, I'm sure people, public health officials, are, are thinking very hard about all these different scenarios. And I think only time will tell, really.
3: Well, obviously, we'll keep an eye on this and we'll have updates on this in the future. But moving on to our second story, we all know that social media is a battleground, but social scientists have been battling bots. So, Heidi, in the first instance, what is a bot?
2: A bot is essentially some code that is written to allow a social media account to look as though it's being run by a person. And we hear a lot about bots, I think, when we talk about, for example, the 2016 presidential election in the United States. Uh, There's been some talk about bots in terms of the Brexit vote that year as well, and how they could be spreading misinformation in an attempt to sway elections or public health officials... Think a lot about bots these days as well because there um, are some bots out there that seem to be spreading misinformation about various health related topics like vaccination, e-cigarettes and so forth.
3: So they're able to be used for sort of nefarious purposes. What's been the impact on social science?
2: Yeah, so there's a whole field of social science these days. It really likes to to go through and look at data from social media sites. It's just a playground for them to, to learn more about how humans interact with one another and how information spreads from one source to another, how it influences behavior. I mean, the list just goes on and on. But the problem is if you're trying to mine these big data sets and your data is polluted by a bunch of bots that are pretending to be people but not actually people, then it doesn't really tell you about human behavior after all.
3: Mm, And so, Are social scientists able to screen for these bots in any way? Is there anything that they can do to say this is a bot and this is a person?
2: Yeah, so there are programs out there. There are things like Bot Meter and Bot Slayer, these different programs that are meant to weed through and look for certain characteristics of bot-like behavior and then weed that out of your data set if you're a social scientist. There are some people who say they're not being used often enough, either because awareness is not high enough or because... It's a bit of a new field and and people are still kind of working their way around trying to find the data standards and and the computational standards for how these sorts of data sets are handled. But the other issue, the sort of more conceptual issue, is that bots are getting more and more sophisticated. They started out being very simple and often just accounts that were trying to drive followers to other accounts and, and things like that. And now they've become much more sophisticated. They behave more and more like people. Some of them even have human-generated content mixed into the bot-generated content to make it harder to detect and so on. So it's an arms race, basically, between the detectors and the and the bot developers.
3: Other than trying to detect the bots, if it is hard, they're more human-like, as you say. Are there any other strategies that social scientists can use?
2: As far as cleaning their data sets, I think you know, probably the best thing is to try to get the bot-generated data out of there as best they can. There are some social scientists who have used bots to do studies and some really interesting studies about racism and and other aspects of human behavior online. Um, So not all bots are nefarious. I mean I subscribe on Twitter to an account that sends me a line from Moby Dick every day. I'm pretty sure that's a bot, but it makes me very happy. So (laughs) and some social scientists have used these as tools to help their own research. But I did speak to at least one who said he has used them in the past, but now that they've gotten such a bad reputation, he thinks he may not use them in the future because he doesn't want, basically, people to get angry with him for using a bot.
3: Well, I'll be on the lookout for bots next time I'm on social media. Heidi, Ewan, thanks for joining me. And listeners, for more on those stories, head over to nature.com slash news.
5: That's all we've got time for this week. If you'd like to follow a Twitter account that's not run by bots, you can follow us at naturepodcast. Also, if you'd like more coronavirus info, head over to our YouTube channel where we've got a quick explainer it. You can find that and all our other videos over at youtube.com slash nature video channel. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And
3: I'm Nick Howe. Thanks for listening.